Welcome to episode 11 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hey everybody, Todd Houston here. Just wanted to say go over to the 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com website and check out some of the new content that we have to offer. We have webinars and courses, and we have two outstanding other podcasts that we are now producing. One is Telepractice Today and Act to Live. So go check out all that stuff. I think you'll really enjoy it. Now, back to the Listening Brain Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Lori Bobson, a speech-language pathologist and certified auditory verbal therapist, to the podcast today. Lori is the coordinator of the oral habilitation program for the University of Virginia Cochlear Implant Program in Charlottesville, Virginia, and an adjunct professor at the University of Virginia. Lori has over 20 years' experience providing listening and spoken language therapy, as well as consultation and training to individuals, families, and state agencies on a variety of topics related to auditory verbal practice. Dr. Bobson has presented at national and state conferences and has taught graduate-level courses in oral habilitation. Her research interests include cognitive and linguistic development of children with hearing loss. She is a member of the Virginia Network of Consultants, an organization supported by the Virginia Department of Education that provides educational setting evaluations for children with hearing loss in the Virginia public schools. In addition, she is a member of the Board of Directors and a state champion for the American Cochlear Implant Alliance a newly appointed trustee of the Communication Disorders of Virginia Foundation, and she is currently the president of the Virginia chapter of the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, where she also serves as the advocacy chair. So Lori is quite busy, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show today. Here's that interview. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Lori Bobson with me on the tele- on the podcast today. Uh, Lori is the oral habilitation coordinator for the University of Virginia Cochlear Implant Program. And so as a point of disclosure, Lori and I were together at the University of South Carolina, where she did her master's degree in speech-language pathology, and I was there working on my doctoral degree at the time. So I've known Lori for quite a few years. So welcome to the podcast, Lori. Thank you. When did you graduate from USC, Lori? 
Oh, so disclosure there, right? Let's just figure out our age one way or the other. <laughs> I graduated from the University of South Carolina in 2000. In 2000. So, so working together uh, for a couple of years for that. So we've known each other for basically 22 years. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I left there in 2000, so you and I kind of left at the same time. So that's, that's great. I was trying to remember exactly when we overlapped there. So 2000. Wow. So how did you get drawn into this area of listening and spoken language for kids with hearing loss? I actually, um, by life circumstance, ended up in South Carolina, and um, I had just completed my degree, uh, my bachelor's degree in hearing and speech science at State University of New York um, in Plattsburgh, and um, was looking into different ad- graduate programs to complete my complete my work. And um, USC obviously was was close to me at the time and applied and was accepted. And in my first year there, um, we were very lucky, I think, at the University of South Carolina because we had two different specialty programs. And one of the specialty programs was in um, oral rehabilitation for children with who have received a cochlear implant and auditory verbal strategies and techniques. And um, I tell my families that I work with within probably the first week or two, if not shorter period of time, that um, the, the class that you offered to tell us about oral rehabilitation for children with cochlear implants and auditory verbal therapy, um, at the time that I left that class, I was at that point saying, you know, you can, you know, give me what I need and graduate me because I don't ever want to do anything else. This is what I want to do with my life. And, um, you know, uh, but at the same time, I think that's a, a bit of a misstatement because I also tell the graduate students that I teach that, um, when you work in oral rehabilitation, you're going to need every single aspect of, communication disorders (laughs) that you're going to learn in graduate school because having a hearing loss does not um, um, allow a child to be, you know, excluded from having any other communication disorder. So um, at the same, so that's probably the main reason why I just absolutely fell in love with, with this area of study and and practice. Well, I, I do remember you as a student. I actually have videos that I've used uh, when I've talked about, auditory verbal therapy and giving presentations. And there's actually a video of you working with one of the children we had at the time. And we won't go into who that was, but uh, it was a great little video. And, uh, and so I do remember you and students would extend by one summer. Is that right? And then they would use that summer to go up to or go somewhere to provide to get some additional training. Uh, and uh, you went to correct Soundbridge, if I remember. Yes. I can't really kind of go back and, and figure out where <laughs> my whole decision making was in that part, but I was certainly in love with what I was doing. And I was certainly under the guidance of amazing, amazing people with Dr. Elizabeth Cole and, and um, Ellen Gill. I couldn't have been, had, I couldn't have been in a better place. And I, I learned so, so much that summer and was also, um, because they were aware of the situation as well, um, have developed lifelong friendships and uh, with them as well. And, and they, you know, it, it really, the best possible scenario could have happened out of a really tragic situation that, um, you know, I was able to get some of the best training I could have ever asked for and developed amazing um, friendships and, 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 
colleagues, you know, up until this point, you know, 20 some years later. So um, I try to look at the positive in that and, and, and really thankful for the opportunities that, that, that provided me. Well, it was, uh, it was just something that uh, I've always admired about you. So as you finish uh, in South Carolina, you continued to focus on auditory verbal therapy and talk a little bit about that path that you took. I um, sent applications out to everyone that Ellen told me to send applications out to and to whom you also sent, send applications out to. And the unfortunate thing was at the time that um, there were no openings. Um, and so um, I ended up um, deciding to um, go back home. I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I went back home and I actually worked at as the only pediatric therapist as a CFY um, at Health South Rehabilitation Center, at a Health South Rehabilitation Center. And it was absolute trial by fire because <laughs> you're sent in there as the only pediatric um, SLP as a CFY. And um, we saw every possible disorder you can imagine a pediatric version. Um, and I saw them every 30 to 40 minutes back to back, you know, full day. And um, this did two things, I think. One is that it gave me an immeasurable amount of experience with all of the disabilities that I would later come in contact with only with the concomitant issue of hearing loss. Um, and so it gave me experience with children with syndromes and, and different developmental needs and different developmental challenges, as well as it also solidified the fact that I only wanted to do auditory verbal therapy. Um, so it, two things. One, it gave me a tremendous experience, and it also solidified that. Um, and so within the first six months of being there, um, I received um, a phone call from uh, – uh, Pratiba Srinivasan from Chattering Children in Richmond and was asked to come down to interview for a position that was open in Richmond. Um, and I came down, I interviewed and of course got around the kids again and felt that, you know, draw to, to that, that, you know, desire of mine that I wanted to continue working with these kids. And um, I went back to the folks at Health South and I, apologized profusely. And I just said, I know that I've just taken this position and I know that, you know, I explained everything and I said, but really this is where my heart is. This is, and, um, I again was extremely lucky and extremely blessed by the fact that I had a practicum supervisor, not practicum, a CFY supervisor Mm. there who said, Lori, you, she said, you you need to follow your dreams. You have burned no bridges. You have done, you, you need to go and you need to do this. And I understand. So, um, whereas I was expecting to get sort of a, a verbal thrashing of sorts, um, she was very understanding of that need. Um, and but I also thanked her for the and you know tremendous experience because I could have never gotten that anywhere else. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it it was going from a really intensive sort of variety of patients at Health South to probably more you know intensive but auditory verbal in that situation. Absolutely. And I, I felt like, and quite not to be is completely transparent, honest, I, I felt like I couldn't help any of those families because I felt like I didn't know enough about each one of those disabilities to actually know enough to help, you know, and I, I felt almost helpless in many ways. And part of that could have been being a first year professional right out of graduate school, but also it could have been the fact that, um, 
you you can't be a, you can there's no way of being a master of all of those things and being able to help families to the level in which you can help them when you specialize in a specific area. Yeah, you you raise another interesting topic, which we will save for later. But but as as you probably know, within uh, speech language pathology, there is this mindset that we have to train students to be these generalists uh, when they graduate, so that then they go out and find what they want to do. And I think you know, twenty years later, after you've graduated, you know, the scope of practice is even wider than it was then. And uh, I I think it's hard for students to decide. And I think it's hard for them to, to get the competencies that we really want and need in all of those areas. I mean, we do that because that's what Asha says we have to do to be accredited and all of that. But man, it is, it is hard uh, today. Um, and I've always been a supporter and, 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 because of, of students like you, former students like you, uh, of having some specialization within your graduate program. So that if you really have a passion for something and you can start to develop that passion and get that extra training, but not everyone is in favor of that. This is what I've found. That's my full disclosure at the beginning of my, my graduate class. <laughs> my full disclosure to the students is that, um, I realize that it's a necessity, both a professional necessity, obviously, because it's put forth by ASHA, as well as a necessity for many therapists who go out there who were in a situation like I was at Health South or in a school district, because goodness knows they those 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 therapists have my absolute <laughs> um complete adoration of what they do because they have to to do that every single day. Um but at the same time, I do feel there's a tremendous, tremendous value to having someone who has specialized in a specific area and can help with some of these um, developmental challenges for families um, that I think that otherwise we would only have sort of a superficial idea about the treatment options and abil- you know, abilities of these kids. I agree. I agree. Uh, it is, it's sort of a double-edged sword in terms of you, you want to make sure they have training in all these areas but you know can we give them a little specialization not to overdo it so that they can be prepared if they have to change jobs or change populations they can still be you know competent and doing and providing those services so uh, so not to get off on all that but how long were you with chattering children um i was with chattering children i about a year, I guess, give or take, about a year. Um, I was um, at Chattering Children and was just leafing through, I can't recall now if it was an advanced magazine or an ASHA leader or something, but I saw the um, advertisement for the University of Virginia. And at the time, the University of Virginia, their cochlear implant program um, was, was simply you know, a, a surgeon and the audiology program. They didn't have a rehabilitation component, which was not unusual for cochlear implant programs of the time. You know, um, they, they really just started getting into adding a rehabilitation component, um, you know, many, probably many years later, other than 2000, 2001. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why I was really excited was, you know, it was the first 
cochlear implant program that I've seen in the region that was actually excited about adding a rehabilitation program, um, but at the same time was incredibly daunting to be a fairly new graduate starting a program. <laughs> so so um, never being one to sort of walk away from a challenge, I suppose, I was like, mm-hmm. well, why not? Let's, let's give this a shot. Um, and I was lucky enough to be offered that position. So, um, it took a while to get that up and running and, um, was offered the position. Um, and we started in October of 2001, I think. Wow. So you guys are coming up on 21 year, uh, 20 years next year with the, with the implant program, with the, with the habilitation side of the implant program. Right, exactly. And honestly, you know, there have been ups and downs with rehabilitation programs, as you know, across the country. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, the University of Virginia for staying strong, you know, with that. Um, one of the things that I think got me interested in the University of Virginia was when I was at Chattering Children, we had patients from all over and um, all different implant programs. And everyone kept saying that, you know, at UVA, we're treated like family. We're not treated like, you know, a number. We're treated like we're, you know, family. We're treated like, and I thought, well, gosh, well, that's kind of, you know, my philosophy. I kind of like that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I love um, listening to spoken language therapy is because you get such, you know, get to understand and and know the family so well. Um, And and I found that to be the case. And, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have developed, you know, really great friendships and, and relationships with the families over the years. It's kind of hard to believe that, some of the children I started with are now graduating from universities in Virginia, but we'll take that, <laughs> I suppose. So, Lori, just just know that uh, at some point <laughs> you may experience the situation where the child you used to work with has gone to college, gotten married, and had their own children, and the and those children have hearing loss, and now they want to come to see you. Yes. <laughs> That'll be a whole other yeah, that's, you know, realization. Yes. And so uh, I've experienced that now, <laughs> just being around for a while. Um, so it, it's interesting to see that kind of thing. Uh, but good. I mean, it, it, it helps to reinforce why we do what we do, is that these children can grow up and have a normal life. They can grow up and go to college. They can do the things that they want to do and and have all these life and career options available to them. And that's what we want to see. Yeah. It's really neat to have a family that you worked with 20 years ago and check your mail and get a, you know, a college announcement, you know, a college graduation announcement or high school graduation announcement. And um, just knowing that, you know, you touched that family so much that they remembered to send you an invitation 20 years later. I think that's, that's a remarkable thing. And that's something that maybe all of us don't get a chance to to experience. That's right. That's right. So coming up on 20 years at Virginia, and you started really from scratch to define that auditory verbal program, that oral habilitation program. How can you give me a rough estimate? How many kids have you worked with over the years or (laughs) planted uh, through? Oh, goodness. I should know these numbers. (laughs) I should know these numbers. I really, I, I hesitate to take a guess on that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, our cochlear implant uh, program director is out on maternity leave, so I can't even text her at this point to say, send me the numbers. Um, 
Hundreds, thousands. Hundreds, 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 hundreds. Um, you know, probably close to a thousand, I would guess, you know, just because um, I work with and uh, work with the families of children, not just the families who choose to come for auditory verbal therapy. I mean, we have um, families who get implanted who have chosen to um, utilize a more um, sort of simultaneous communication approach where they use some signs, some some uh, listening and, you know, spoken language techniques and strategies. Um, and some families whose children have um, additional developmental issues that almost require them to have additional um, inputs and modalities of input for communication development. Um, so I don't necessarily work with all of those families, but one of the things that we realized very quickly um, at UVA is that we don't have a critical mass of patients in our, in our in close proximity. We were talking about um, defining our population and defining the program. Um, I think one of the things we found out very early on was that we didn't have a critical mass of kids, uh, patients um, in in around Charlottesville. I mean, we obviously have children from Charlottesville, but the majority of our families um, come from quite a distance because we are fairly rural in Virginia. Um, we are located in west of central Virginia. <laughs> so um, a lot of our families come from, you know, areas close to West Virginia, close to Tennessee, close to North Carolina. So we draw families from quite a large geographic area. And so we realized very quickly that we needed to provide more than just in-person therapy. We need to provide outreach and training. And so our program became a little bit less than um, heavy therapeutic um, and more sort of a, a division between, um, you know, therapy and providing outreach and training to the professionals who would see these children when they went back home. Um, because as for many families, a drive of three, three and a half, even four hours um, coming for programming is, you know, is hard, is difficult. Um, but coming weekly would be incredibly prohibitive. So um, we had to sort of divide and, and figure out or devise and figure out kind of how we would best manage our patient load, our patient demographic. So talk a little bit more about the training that you do provide, say with that family who may be three hours away and they're from a, maybe a more rural area of another state or another part of Virginia. How do you reach out and help provide resources and training to that, those professionals in that area? Um, the first thing we do is when a family comes in for, excuse me, their implant evaluation, um, I always send a letter with the families um, you know, addressed specifically to the particular professionals who are working with that child at that time. Um, introduce myself, provide my contact information, and uh, we do that to... Um, for two reasons. One is to make sure we have contact with that professional. Um, but also I always ask that professional to please contact us if for some reason um, intervention is disconnected or intervention ceases so that I can reach out to the family and ask, you know, kind of what's happening, what's going on and make sure that child stays in intervention services. Um, but once we reach out, um, then we try to develop a relationship such that when that family does come to UVA for um, an implant, um, you know, update and implant programming session, um, 
we try to meet with that family and I try to talk to the child and look at the child and do some diagnostic therapy, kind of figure out where they are, get input from the professional back home, um, and then try to reach out to the professional again and say, these are the things I saw. You know, this is where I think they are developmentally and then provide additional steps potentially in the next couple months to say, maybe we want to work on this or, you know, this is an area that I think that we could work a little bit more on and provide them with specific um, areas to try to work on for that child over the next month or two or maybe three until we see them again at UVA. Um, In addition to sort of the more personal training and outreach, um, I've provided many um, workshops and trainings and um, obviously interventions <laughs> of sorts, but um, through um, our early intervention system, um, I have hosted several that I have I've taught several classes, um, workshops and such. Um, the Department of Ed um, hosted a full series um, many years ago, probably 2006, 2007, uh, where we provided a year-long stepwise training and listening and spoken language and auditory verbal strategies and the techniques. Um, and so it was, you know, we provided almost a full day training. Therapists, professionals all went back, practiced what they learned, and then they came back. I think it was a series of four throughout the year that we did. Um, And then um, I am also a member of what's called um, the Virginia Network of Consultants, which is a program in Virginia that is partially funded through our Virginia Department of Ed. And through that program, um, I am able to be called if a family needs, or if a school district needs assistance or an early intervention region needs assistance with a particular child, they can call me and we can set up a consultation whereby I would go and observe the child in their um, educational setting or home setting or whatever and provide um, recommendations to the professionals in that capacity. Um, If we feel that it's necessary, we can actually set up a situation where we provide full day trainings to the staff of that school district. Um, Prior to the last two years, um, funding has allowed us to provide 100% reimbursement to every school district and every early intervention division that required assistance of a consultant. Um, And most recently, because of budget cuts and all kinds of things, they're back to more of an 80% reimbursement, but that's still, I think, a tremendous um, asset for for our school and early intervention programs. Um, Not that being said, the Virginia Network of Consultants has the full range of consultants available. We have those who specialize in ASL. We have those who specialize in more of a simultaneous approach. We have cued speech professionals. We have audiologists and speech pathologists. So it's not just a program for families who use listening and spoken language, but for all children um, who are deaf and hard of, or hard of hearing in Virginia public schools and early intervention programs. That's a wonderful program. I, I wish all states had something like that would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's one of the things I'm very proud of um, in Virginia, one of the things. Yeah, that's uh, and, and so that, that leads me to some of the advocacy stuff that you've been working on, some of the different initiatives that you've that have sort of fallen on your, <laughs> on your plate, so to speak, yes. and you've taken on over the years. And, and I have a, a, a feeling that this is this, uh, the network of consultants was probably one of those that came along your way. And and so talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's another aspect of being a strong professional is to be involved to help be a change agent. I think um, 
since since 2000, I guess, since I, I found kind of what I wanted to, to do with my life, um, I think the th- under, underlying current of all of that is, um, you know, I really, I need these kids to have every opportunity possible to do what I know they can do, you know, and, um, and the, have the opportunities available to them. Because I think that um, hearing loss, unlike any other disability, any other medical challenge, just, you know, disability challenge that children have, hearing loss with a child with hearing loss, significant, severe to profound hearing loss, they can either have their life completely stifled by this disability if it's not remediated early and get intervention, you know, in audiologic and, and therapy, therapeutic avenues, or it can be opened up to absolutely any possibility. And I think that is, is both, you know, energizing and also incredibly humbling because you have this human potential that could go either way. And, you know, there's not very many disabilities that have that opportunity to have a child lead an absolutely normal life um, with absolutely no reservations and no, no restrictions. Um, And so that advocacy comes from either being the advocate for the child in empowering the parent to do what they need to do. But advocacy also comes when that parent needs help. And there are certain um, areas that are um, policy related or regulation related or um, legislatively related that may impede that family's ability to do what they need to do for their child to give them those opportunities. So I think, you know, in the last five years, that last part of advocacy has sort of been opened up to me as far as um, what we need to do to allow that family to do what they need to do for their child. And um, never anything in the world I ever thought that I would be involved with. Um, but I certainly realized very quickly that I needed to pay more attention to high school civics because <laughs> um, there was you know, learning about government and learning about the governmental legislative you know, procedures and policies and, you know, it's, it's been not only incredibly enlightening, but also very, very challenging to um, get up to speed on that learning curve because, you know, we walked into this thing not knowing anything. And <laughs> again, there's another thing in my life. There's a third thing we've talked about that I was like, well, let's see how this goes, right? <laughs> let's, see, let's jump into this one with two feet and see how this goes. Um, that sort of seems to be a theme, but um, we have learned a lot. And um, even though I sort of have been sort of pushed into the forefront of that, um, could never have accomplished anything near to what we've accomplished in the last five years without the amazing professionals and the amazing strong parents that we have had on our team all along. Because um, when, when these needs were needed, when these needs were identified, we just had, um, professionals and parents sign on and have been fully committed for four years where, you know, I send out an email or a text and people are there ready and willing to help these families. So I think it's been an a, a amazing experience and learning experience for me. It's, it's sort of the, the grassroots and the treetops as they talk about the grassroots advocacy and the treetops, uh, treetop advocacy as well. And so you've, you've definitely dived into the, um, tree, excuse me, into the grassroots to really build 
in a sense, a movement there in Virginia and then to create more change and to create more knowledge about what these children can achieve if they have the right set of circumstances in place. And I think it's incredible that you've been able to do that, working with you know, your colleagues as well as the parents. Uh, but, you know, often these, these, legis- you know, these legislators have no idea what these needs are. They have a very cursory, you know, idea of what deafness is and, and what the outcomes are. And, and in my own experience, I would be told, oh, we have the school for the deaf. Like, what else do you need? You know, for money to that entity, what else do you need? You know, because that was sort of in their mindset, sort of, we we're already taking care of that population because we have a school specifically for them. Right. And so there right. are these other more, you know, higher priority kinds of things. Uh, and so it can be very frustrating and very, um, you know, it seems to, well, when I was doing more of it, you know, you, you take two steps forward and three steps backwards sometimes. But uh, overall, you just keep plugging away. And over time, you start to make the changes that are necessary. Well, and I think that, you know, it has illuminated all of these other issues that we didn't know were present. I mean, even, you know, beyond what we were sort of going in there and talking about, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, we walked into, I can't even, innumerable offices, met with legislators, met with legislative aides who had absolutely no idea that this was possible. So I, I, I missed one of our most important groups. And, and that is when you bring a five, six, seven year old child in with you, <laughs> who says, hi, I'm, you know, so-and-so and I'm here to talk to you. And this is what I'm talking about. Oh, by the way, I was born profoundly deaf. Right. And, and they don't believe you <laughs> at first, you know, um, you know, so we either brought the children with us who could speak for themselves, which is amazing, um, or brought videos of the children. Uh, and, and they didn't know, they had no idea. And so if you, again, take everything away from, you know, that you peel away all the levels of whatever this advocacy thing is, we, if we talk to one person and we get that one person to know this is possible. You never know if you're going to hit the right person. And if you hit the right person who is then going to tell two people is going to tell two people is going to tell two people. But if you do that a hundred times after five years or 600, whatever it is, um, we're making change slowly, but making change in a way that I think is very important, regardless of the ultimate outcome. We have, we have educated these legislators to realize that there's another option, you know, and I think that that's, that's really very important um, for the long run. I do have to say that one of the main things that came out of the very first meeting with the Disability Commission, when we first went in there and talked to them about the legislative legislation or the bill that was proposed and how it could be detrimental to a significant number of children with hearing loss in Virginia, and they had no idea, this group of individuals, the, um, you know, the population at large, the legislators, everyone who was on this committee had no idea that there was another option. Um, the majority of them didn't. Um, we found out very quickly when we looked at the Department of Ed numbers and they made statements like, you know, only 30% of children with hearing loss in Virginia are passing their standards of learning assessments. And only 40% of these children are graduating with a standard diploma. And, and I, I asked the question, how do we get these numbers? 
And they said, well, we get these numbers from our IEP data. And I said, so what about children with who use listening as spoken language who enter school districts never having an IEP? Mm-hmm. Or what about these children who um, only need potentially a 504 plan, maybe nothing, but potentially a 504 plan prior to the first year of their standards of learning assessments in third grade, and they drop away from the IEP program and the IEP data, you're missing a significant number of data points in that. So you're not speaking for all children with hearing loss in Virginia. You are speaking for a specific population of children with hearing loss in Virginia, potentially a specific hearing loss of children with in Virginia who have additional disabilities and concomitant disabilities and cognitive issues that may preclude them from doing all of these things anyway. So I said, your data is skewed. Yep. And, and so I think that that alone, you know, put a flashlight on things that it took a few minutes of quiet for everyone to figure out that we're not looking at a full population mm-hmm. number here whatsoever. Good for you. I mean, you, you got right to the heart of the matter asking those questions. We're making decisions based on data that's inaccurate. <laughs> that's right. You, you got to have the data. And it's and and we know that these kids are going to be doing much better than that in terms of those statistics. So obviously, they're not looking at the full picture. So good for you for for being there and advocating and saying, "Wait a minute, hold your horses, <laughs> put the brakes on," because this is this is not where we are at. And so that's that's great. So I, I assume subsequently to that, they had to revamp some numbers. Or- um, I'm hoping. <laughs> I have not had an update on that. Um, but my suggestions were that um, we need to find out what population or sample thereof, I guess, of, of children we are quoting those numbers on. And let's be very specific. This isn't all children with hearing loss in Virginia, but potentially a specific you know, group of children, um, or we need to do something like um, make sure that every single child, regardless of their ability academically, is at least followed by a 504 plan, right? If, if we can make sure that each one of these children get into the system of some sort, then we can get all the data, right? But we can't let, if we want to get all the data for all the children, then we need to find a way to follow these children, not let them out of the system, not allow them to get out of the system and be, you know, even though our ultimate goal is that they assimilate into the, you know, the majority of the population of kids in in a school district. Um, If we want data that we can make good decisions upon, then we need to make sure that we have all the data and it's not skewed to one one side or the other. Um, Then let's follow all of these children all the way through high school with a 504 plan and let's get literacy numbers, let's get standards of learning numbers, let's get real numbers and let's delineate them based on all the different areas that we're concerned about and figure out which population of children is needing the most help and which children, which children uh, we need to make decisions upon based on those numbers. Good for you. Good for you. I mean, that not is that now it just needs to happen, but, <laughs> but we said it nonetheless. You're right. And so you've you've laid out a path for them. You know they don't have to go figure it out. Well, how are we going to do this? Here's a solution. You know, here's the problem we're identifying. These numbers are wrong or skewed. Here's a solution. Here's a way that we can fix this and start having more accurate data to make 
decisions on or to be able to use to make decisions going forward. Isn't that great? And so I think that's wonderful. Yep. <laughs> right. In a pop- right. Right. So just going back to your your life, this is your life, Lori Bob. Uh, you you do finish. Oh, excuse me. You you uh, come to Virginia. You you become an auditory verbal therapist, certified auditory verbal therapist, and and then you do something really crazy, and decide to get a PhD. Because why not? Because why not? Let's jump in and do that. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about your your academic uh, side of things and and your teaching and and other things that you've been doing. Um. One of the things I always tell my husband is that, you know, I'm not sure that um, I'm a great therapist. I'm not sure that I'm a great this or great that, but I'm good at school. Like my grandfather always told me I'm good at school. <laughs> I can do school. School's okay. Um, so um, I actually decided to pursue the PhD um, because I felt like it would give me additional whatever it might be. Um, you know, having that additional whatever to be able to do what I need to do for these kids, right? So having that additional amount of education or or whatever that PhD gives you to potentially have more, um, you know, voice in helping these families, um, that's the initial reason why I um, decided to to jump into that endeavor. Um, and I, I was accepted uh, at the University of Virginia into the PhD program in 2003, and I completed my PhD in 2010. <laughs> and that was because shortly after being accepted into the program, um, my then um, boyfriend asked me to marry him and we had a wedding to plan. And so we worked slowly through that and planned a wedding, did all of that kind of great stuff. And then after that, we decided to have two children and there were some Paul's in there as well. So we have two amazing boys that are nine and 13. Um, and so that took me a little bit. And so it took me a little bit of time. You have um, seven years to complete your PhD program at the university of Virginia. And I did it in six years and 10 months. So it was amazing. <laughs> um, and often, I'm not sure if I ever shared this with you, but I told my husband that I always felt like, you know, you always have that, oh, why do I keep going or keep going or why am I doing this? And, um, it was very much, um, like Forrest Gump. I think it was almost like, well, since I've come this far, I might as well, you know, Mm -hmm. keep going. Um, and we kept going and I kept going, as I said before, um, mostly because of your persistent phone calls to get going and do my thing. Um, I, I fully believe that I completed my PhD program and, and completed it and didn't give up and throw in the towel. Um, Again, mostly because of, of your insistence and your help and your guidance and support, um, which I've been very, very thankful for for 20-some years. So um, I'm thankful for that, and, and we did finish it, and um, I got the prize of being able to pick what kind of pizza we got that night. So that was a good thing. <laughs> that was my prize for finishing my PhD program. Um, so, yeah, so I did that, and um, I think that it has been helpful. Mm-hmm. Know, in having that little bit of additional whatever behind my name to hopefully have some um, extra voice to go in and help these families. And mm-hmm. 
one of the things that when we started meeting with legislators, my husband told me at the time, he said, you need to go in and you need to introduce yourself as Dr. Bobson. And I said, but I'm Lori, right? <laughs> so I'm like, I, I'm not good with that whole thing. Um, and they didn't listen to you with Lori. That's right. But when I went in and introduced myself, I'm, you know, Dr. Bobson, I'm the coordinator of the oral rehabilitation program, University of Virginia. Um, I felt like there was more of a palpable, oh, well, maybe she has something to say. And as right or wrong as I think that is in general, as far as whatever my philosophy is about that, um, it, it helped. And I think it helped the families by having someone to stand there that had, um, either at least some perceived knowledge and, and power as far as making those decisions. And I think that's one of the better uses of your PhD is to be able to let it help you be that authority figure in those situations, if that's what it takes, you know, to, for them to, to get the message, to get through <laughs> the fog <laughs> to, to, so that they then listen to you, then, by all means, you're Dr. Bobson every time you go in. Um, you know, I've seen that too, unfortunately. You know, it, it, it's, it's a strange world we are living in, um, even stranger now, but why people sometimes, you know, react that way. You know, you could have been Lori doing the same thing and they wouldn't have listened, as you mentioned. But as soon as you start using that PhD, suddenly their, their eyes, you know, or ears perk up and, and then you have that credibility. And so that's, that's one of the great ways to use the PhD to further the cause, so to speak, uh, the advocacy aspect of it. So with the PhD and, and with that, you, so you're now doing, you have been doing some teaching for UVA. Talk to me about how that has gone. I have been um, teaching the oral rehabilitation program or program oral rehabilitation rehabilitation course uh, for the University of Virginia. Um, gosh, maybe twelve years. Um, so, um, the the professional who I I love and treasure uh, was teaching that was teaching the course prior uh, was moving on to a different university and she asked if I wanted to teach the course and of course jumped at the chance to teach the course um, because um, again I think it allows me to continue what that path is that I've hopefully started many years ago and that is okay so now I can help these children by getting to the professionals the young professionals prior to them getting out and being bogged down by the day-to-day life of being a professional so now I can get this information to these young professionals to be um, at the core Mm -hmm. right and so um, we can start teaching and talking about the listening and spoken language um, opportunities of these kids and the strategies and the techniques and the, you know, all the aspects of, of this listening and spoken language world. And we can get that information to these students. And it's amazing to me, you know, the very first class, I my the, one of the first questions I asked these students is, you know, I put the word deaf on one board and I put the word hard of hearing on the other board. And I said, okay, everybody needs to come up with one word that pops into your head when you think about these concepts and I have these the the students go up and they have to all they everybody has to pick a different one so that's hard right so they have to if if you're slow to get up to the board you better have come up with several ones that you can pick from and 
the concepts that come up still today mm-hmm. are probably the same as they were 30 and 40 years ago, I would assume. People, you know, young, young individuals still do not know what a cochlear implant is, unless it was mentioned in their audiology course, I should say that. But they don't know about the possibilities that are present with listening and spoken language. They don't know. They've never met a child that they know of that had a cochlear implant with early intervention and early identification and the right therapy and all that stuff. Um, And when they meet these kids by video or they meet the adults that have been raised in a listening and spoken language um, environment and are now working anywhere, um, they're amazed. And so the joy for me in that is I know that 20, 30, 40 graduate students who leave the University of Virginia will now at least know that it's an option. Mm -hmm. And at least once a year, there are one or two of them that catch the bug and want to be a listening and spoken language person. And I now, at least to my knowledge, have um, at least three or four of my former students who are certified auditory verbal therapists. So the cool thing is, is I want everybody in that class to know about this stuff, but I want to get at least one or two people to replace me when I retire. <laughs> so, um, you know, I want to make sure that we get that. And and so we have, we're, we're building our listening and spoken language presence, not only in Virginia, but in other states, if the, if those students move out. And I think that that's just an amazing additional joy that we've, we've, I've sort of seen over the last couple of years. That's right. That's right. And I have the, the same satisfaction, you know, of seeing those students go on and are out there doing things now, or, or they, we've had the specialization at Akron for a number of years in, at one time it was funded. Now we don't have any funding. Hopefully that will change in the future. But uh, it's it's so great to see these students really develop that passion. And they decide this is really what I want to do. And and they go off and they pursue it. You know, they graduate. They go find those positions just like you did. You, see, you seek out the positions that will help you get the training and to and now some of them are now working with Hearing First through their mentoring program to get more training and more mentoring for the LISL certification. So it's it's great to see those things continue to happen. I keep telling them I want them to go out and make their first million so then they can hire me to do something and actually pay me a decent salary. But um, <laughs> none have come through yet on that, but uh, hopefully one day. <laughs> I've told some of my families, the, the little ones who are um, independent, <laughs> for like a, the young two, three, four-year-olds who have a mind of their own, as most two and three and four-year-olds have, that they needed to remember the little people <laughs> when they got bigger because they are going to be in charge of something. I don't know what, but right, they're going to be in charge of something. I have, I have a few of those right now, actually. <laughs> oh, and sometimes with those. So how how do you think, or where would you like to see the program there at Virginia, the cochlear implant program and the habilitation program? What would you like to see happen over the next five years? I think over the next five years, I mean, I think the thing that continues to come back in my head through everything that we just discussed is that there are not enough individuals in the state of Virginia, much less, you know, the country, the world, 
there are more people who would benefit from having um, listening and spoken language therapy, cochlear implant, hearing aids, than are actually receiving them. And I think that my biggest hope, bigger than than UVA, is that um, I hope that we can get this message out. You know, I hope we can get this message out that these children can't, because I feel like after 20 years, why does it feel like we're still banging on that door? I, I don't understand why we're still sort of have that, you know, barrier between every child who could benefit from this therapy or benefit from this hearing technology advancement, why we're still seeing children who are not. Um, and now, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the teletherapy, you know, there is, there is incredible opportunity for these families to have access and professionals to have access to professionals who are in this, um, you know, listening and spoken language world. We have the ability to get to these kids through intervention or get to the professionals who are working with these children. So I think more than that, I would like to see the University of Virginia to continue to be maybe an agent of change in, in Virginia as far as getting the information out and getting the knowledge out um, to more Virginians. Um, and I think that I would also like to see the oral rehabilitation program in general grow. Um, I think that we have been prohibited from growth mostly because of our geographic relate, you know, area in that there's only so many families who are going to be driving to UVA for therapy, but with again, telemedicine and teletherapy and telointervention being a possibility, um, I think that opens us up to seeing so many more families. Um, and in the past, just because it's just been me in the past, we've only seen for therapy, we've only seen children who get implanted at UVA because we had to manage the numbers somehow. I think that if we were to open that up outside of the University of Virginia um, implant patient population um, and open it up, we could possibly grow and have additional therapists and, and maybe grow the program to, and I think that in turn, that alone gets the, the word out more to other families and other professionals. Well, hopefully one of the outcomes of this crisis, this health, you know, national, international healthcare crisis that we're in, but one of the outcomes I hope will, will be positive and that will stay in place are the, the, uh, the changes that have happened in terms of reimbursement for telepractice. And so if that stays in place and I, we, we're working on different legislation, Ash is working on it, all that stuff uh, at the federal level to keep all these, uh, these previous restrictions that were removed or waived, to keep all these waivers uh, in place going forward. And so if, you know, if that does happen and we are able to continue to bill for telepractice services as speech language pathologists and serve adults and children, then hopefully just by the fact that you're able to bill for those services that you would be able to add one, two, three or more therapists in the future. We're hoping, we're hoping, and we're hoping especially for um, listening and spoken language therapist as well as other therapists maybe for whom there are not as many therapists as is the need out there that telemedicine is the answer 
to that. I mean, telemedicine is the answer for having so many children spread out over a geographic need, you know, a low, a low incidence disability, but children spread out everywhere who need it uh, requires the ability to have access to the one professional who has a specialization in that area. Um, And the only way to do that realistically is through, you know, online therapy, right? Is through virtual, you know, telemedicine, through telemedicine. That's right. That's right. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully all those things will come to pass and it'll help you continue to, to grow and do the wonderful things that you're doing there at Virginia. So I asked you where you saw your, where you saw the program. Where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? Um, that's hard to say, right? <laughs> so, um Hopefully staying sane as a mother of two boys would be the first thing. Um, Surviving teenagers would be the main thing, I think, at this juncture, because we're just seeing the glimpses of that with my oldest. Um, But um, I would like to grow the program at UVA. I think that the program at UVA um, has the potential of doing really great things. I mean, I think that other programs across the state have seen their ups and downs and um, we've seen our ups and downs, but overall I've seen a very strong support of the program in general from the powers that be. So I hope that that continues. Um, And, and I hope that we can continue to, um, to build the program. But I think if we're building the program, I think what we really need to do is to build a better collaborative relationship between the health system and our academic center, you know, our academic um, system and and health center. (laughs) Um, But also to to potentially do that, we can bring more graduate students into the clinic or we can provide supervision um, at their center um, so that we're not only growing by providing the therapy and present, potentially growing by building the capacity, therapeutic clinical capacity in the students who are there at the University of Virginia right now, not just teaching them the theory, but also allowing them to apply it in their, their clinical practice as well. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you for your time today. You've you know continued to inspire me and in all the things that you're doing. And I, I look at myself and I feel like I'm, I just need to start getting more stuff done because you, you're all these <laughs> Uh, in the state and at, at the university and at the implant program and, and you're a mom and wife and all those things too. So I just admire everything that you're doing and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you feel as inspired as I do after hearing that interview with Lori Bobson. Lori has been such an incredible professional for many years, and I really appreciate all the work that she's doing on behalf of families and that have children with hearing loss and the children themselves, not only in the state of Virginia, but throughout the Southeast, nationally and internationally as well. She is a real go-getter and just so inspirational. So, Lori, keep up the great work. And for you, you can help us keep up great work by leaving us a five-star review of this podcast and of this episode. That helps us to attract more listeners and to grow the program. We want more people to get this information and to hear about the possibilities of listening and spoken language as it pertains to children with hearing loss. So please leave us that review and feel free to share the episode or the podcast with those other individuals you think might would benefit. So thank you again. 
as always, for listening. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.